<clears throat> I think a lot of our practical focus this morning, as we look at this passage, should, should center on sanctification. Sanctification is, uh, is that process of being set apart to God. We all need sanctification. We need complete sanctification. That means in every area of our life. But there are times when we see the need for sanctification of a particular sin or a particular attitude that stands out to us. Sometimes we can observe and identify the areas in which we need to be set apart from sin and the world and set apart to God and His holiness. And that process always involves faith, always involves hope, always involves love. In Jacob's case, Jacob is who we're returning to uh, this morning in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to observe uh, that, that Jacob's a deceiver. We learned back in chapter 27, he's a deceiver. And with, with his mother Rebekah's help, he deceived his father Isaac and stole his brother Esau's blessing. As a result, Isaac and Rebekah send him to Haran to keep from being murdered by Esau. And this young man Jacob is, is God's chosen seed for the line of promise. Can you believe that? This guy? You see, Jacob needs to be sanctified, doesn't he? He needs to be sanctified from his self-sufficiency, his deceiving others to get what he wants. He needs to be sanctified from that to trusting God who has promised to bless him. He did. God promised to bless him. We're going to meet his wife, Rachel, who also needs to be sanctified. From her self-sufficiency, she uses others to get what she wants. So move from that to move towards persevering in God who has, who has not forgotten but remembers Rachel. We'll see that story unfold. See, Jacob and Rachel need faith, hope, and love. Faith in God, hope in his promises, and, and his love that flows from his sovereign grace to us. Sometimes we fail to see how deceived we are and therefore how great our need is to be sanctified. We find ourselves accommodating the world around us. We find ourselves falling into deception. Ours and the deception of others wreaked upon us. We compete in rivalries that aren't necessary. All the while, our sovereign God, our creator God, our covenant-making God remembers us. He remembers his promises to us in Christ, the seed of the woman. So that when circumstances become chaotic and people become confusing, we have a steady hope in a stable Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think we're going to be helped to remember that this morning. And you want to remember that because there will be times when you need that. Observing the life of Jacob will help strengthen our faith in Christ, our hope in Christ, and our love for Christ, who first loved us and remembers to love us even when we sometimes forget to love him. So if you want to follow along in Genesis chapter 29, use your sermon outline if you would. I think that will help you along and to take some notes. I'm going to read in two parts this morning. A lot of reading, so I'm going to get at it. But we are in Genesis chapter 29. I'll read verses 1 to 30. This is the word of God. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone 
on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, and Jacob rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing, tell me. What shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because he had love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Well, we need to remember that the jumping-off point of Jacob's mission to find a wife in Haran is God's promise to Jacob in a dream at Bethel. Back in chapter 28, just before this, verses 10 to 22, God passes on his covenant of land, seed, and blessing to Jacob. God promises Jacob everything. And Jacob promises to give God 10%. Jacob's a deal maker. 
If you give me everything as you promised, God, I'll give you 10%. God is the one who's in control. I just want to say that. Extending his covenant to the next generation as he has promised to do and as he has done before through the generations. But Jacob thinks he's in control, making another great deal for Jacob. That's the self-serving and assertive Jacob who walks into Haran at the home of his mother looking for a wife from the house of his uncle Laban. And look at him. Jacob initiates all the conversation. Hey, where are you guys from? Do you know Laban? Is he prospering? Hey, you guys are shepherding all wrong. You should be scattering in the pasture, not gathering at the well. I mean, that's, that's pretty assertive for a stranger from away to come tell you how to do your job. Let me tell you how to do your job. While he was still giving them advice, Rachel brings Laban's flock to the well. So Jacob himself rolls the stone off the top of the well. I'm not waiting for you guys. I'll, I'll roll this stone. It's a big stone. And he waters Laban's sheep. And he kisses Rachel and says, I'm here. I mean, can't you see him? Flexing his biceps. Smiling. You know, shirt off like the soccer players, right? Rolls the stone off. Shirt off. Celebrate. Now, this was kind of a family kiss. A greeting kiss, not a romantic kiss. But, but it sends Rachel running back to the house to her father Laban. And then Laban comes running to welcome Jacob. Laban always seems to do well when descendants of Abraham visit him. That's why he's hoofing it out to meet Jacob. And Jacob hangs out for a month watering Laban's sheep. Wow. Wow, Jacob, man, you are really on your way. You are really on your way to making things happen for yourself here. One of the things that we have to do with this search for a bride story is compare Jacob's seeking a wife from Laban with Abraham's servant seeking a wife from Laban for Isaac. Remember that story? We have two stories in this place at this well to find a wife for God's chosen man. It was back in Genesis chapter 24. Remember that account? Same family, same place, same well, same Laban. Remember how Abraham's servant set out on his journey? The Lord led him to Abraham's family in Haran. He waited quietly at the well and prayed for God to reveal a suitable wife. While he was praying, Rebekah appeared at the well. Rebekah watered her father's sheep herself. Instead of watering her sheep, the servant asks her to give him a drink. And she gives him a drink, and then she waters all of his camels. And when Laban came Running to the servant, <clears throat> he immediately told Laban about God's hand in every detail of his journey and leading him to Rebekah. That servant was completely conscious of God's active control, sovereign control. He's even counting on it. So when the servant asks Laban to let him take Rebekah to back home to marry Isaac, how does Laban respond? When chapter 24, Four, verses 50 and 51, Then Laban and Bethuel, that was the father, answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Could Jacob's seeking of a wife for Laban 
be any more different than that? Where is God in Jacob's encounter with Laban? It's a good question. In fact, it's the question we should be asking. Chapter 29, verse 1, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east and never once mentions God. Can you believe that? God had just handed Jacob the promises of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac. Jacob hears it in fear and awe. Awesome is this place. This is the place of God. And then Jacob takes off to make his own deal for a wife. Just like that. Instead of praying and asking God for a wife, he decides he's in control and can find a wife for himself. And how does that work out for Jacob? Well, here comes Laban. Running to Jacob, all smiles, hugs, and kisses. And he recognizes that he and Jacob are cut from the same cloth, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, we're kinsmen. He says, <laughs> we're alike, aren't we? Laban is the more experienced deceiver. He discerns this. Jacob does not. Laban has leverage. He has what Jacob wants, and he's deceptive. He knows how to use it for his own good. Laban knows this free labor can't go on forever, and he's ready to make a deal to keep Jacob working for him. So Laban opens up negotiations. Jacob agrees to work for Laban seven years for Rachel to be his wife. What does Laban say? Well, better to you than some other guy. Is that a yes or a no? Whatever it is, it's not a yes, but Jacob thinks it's a yes. At the end of seven years, Jacob says, give me my wife, which Laban does. But surprise, it's not Rachel. It's Leah. How can that happen? I mean, we're scratching our heads again. Well, Jacob probably had a few cups of wine at the week-long party. Leah probably wore a veil and all the lights were out. So Jacob has consummated the marriage, his marriage covenant, with Leah. It's done. What have you done to me? Why have you deceived me? Jacob cries to Laban. You've heard those words before. You know, those, those are the words that Pharaoh cried to Abraham when Abraham tricked him about Sarah not being his wife. Those are the words Abimelech cried out to Isaac when Isaac tricked him about Rebekah not being his wife. Jacob the deceiver has been out-deceived by the greater deceiver who's Laban. Laban just sits back, folds his arms, and calmly explains, well, since, you know, Leah's the older daughter and not yet married, Jacob will have to marry Leah before he could marry Rachel, the younger daughter. That's how we do it. Everyone knows that's how it's done here. But, of course, Jacob did not know that. And it turns out that Jacob was not in control at all. He thought he was. He thought he'd made the deal. For the girl he loves, and he was not in control at all. That has been made clear when he wakes up and sees his wife, Leah. And it's quite a shock to him. You see, God is in control, and God has allowed Jacob to be the victim of the same sin he has committed against others. His characteristic sin of deception. Uncle Laban, his own family, 
deceived Jacob, just as Jacob had deceived his own father Isaac and his own brother Esau. And the same issue is at stake. Did you notice that? It's about younger and older. Jacob wanted the younger daughter before the older daughter. Just as he, the younger son, wanted the blessing rather than Esau, the firstborn. Same issue at stake. We would call this poetic justice. We would call this what goes around comes around. We will not call this karma. I don't know what that means. We don't use that word. But others might. Jacob is not one iota in control of his life. God is in control even over Laban's sin. You have to understand that. God did not cause Laban to sin. God is not the author of sin. But God is using Laban's sin against Jacob to reveal his own sin to him. Jacob, can't you see your own sin? Can't you see the way you deceive people in the way that Laban has committed this sin of deception against you. Can't you see that now? He doesn't. But he will. Sanctification is a process. It'll take a while. About 20 years. But he will. And and we'll read about it in chapter 31 when we get there. So the question, where is God in all of this? Well, just because Jacob doesn't mention God on his journey does not mean that God is not there or that God's not in control. And in a subtle way, Moses, our author, shows us that. Look at this in verse in chapter 28, towards the, uh, the middle part, Jacob's dream. In chapter 28, Moses uses the word behold four times. Behold's an important word. It's an attention-getting word. Behold means, wow, look at that. That's what, that's what behold does. Behold doesn't point to just, just anything. It points to big things. And so in chapter 28, Moses uses this word four times. He writes, behold, there was a ladder. He writes, behold, the angels of God. He writes, behold, the Lord. He writes, behold, I am with you. You see, behold doesn't point to random coincidences. It points to the sovereign providence of God. This is God doing this. This is God revealing this. This is God acting. And so in chapter 29, we cross over that little chapter boundary. In Jacob's journey, which flows right after that, Moses uses the word behold four times. Now, that would stand out to the Hebrew reader. But it doesn't always make it through our English translation. Moses writes in verse 2, As he looked, that's the word behold. Behold, he saw a well. Then, behold, he saw three flocks. In verse 7, behold, it's still high day. There, There is actually a fifth usage, but it's by the shepherds, not by Jacob. When they say, see, or behold, Rachel's coming. And then down in verse 25, Behold, it's Leah. See, Moses is intentionally using these deliberate grammatical markers to link God's power and sovereign control over all things in chapter 28 to his power and sovereign control over all things in chapter 29. That God is at work. Hey, Jacob made it to the right country and the right well and the right time to find the right girl. Coincidence? 
No. Is he just that good? No. Behold, God is at work in Jacob's life even though Jacob is not conscious of it. Moses emphasizes that to us. Behold, God is in control even using Laban's sin to sanctify Jacob because God has chosen Jacob to carry on the line of promise. Now, he's using Laban's sin to teach Jacob that God's in control. Jacob's making a mess of things. By his grace, God is sorting them out. It's the same way in our lives. Ultimately, you are not in control of your life. If you have not heard that before, that's good news for you this morning. You are not in control of your life. Like Jacob, you may think you are. Sure, we we do what we can day to day, as time goes by, but God is the one who is in control of all things. And so the question you want to ask yourself is, how long will it be until you figure that out? By God's grace, you can grasp that this morning. It's being taught to us in the truth of Scripture. And you can begin your journey with God and towards His blessing. You know, if you have surrendered control of your life to God, you know that you have not lost control of your life. You have not lost control of something you used to have control of. You have only come in line with the truth that God was always in control of those things anyway. You're just giving up your foolishness and coming to the truth that you've been deceived about until now. And you can see how your sovereign and powerful God is using all things for your good. That's what he's doing to Jacob. He's using all things, even Laban's sin against him, for Jacob's good. He uses all things for the good of those who love him. The New Testament tells us. And God loved Jacob. And so God disciplines Jacob. Because a good father disciplines his children, whom he loves. He used everything, every circumstance, every person in Jacob's life to sanctify Jacob. So when you enter trials, when others sin against you, when you sin, you can know that God is disciplining his children and that he will discipline you because he loves you. He does not ignore you. He parents you in righteousness. He uses all things for us to become holy. Not a single one of us is going to escape God's sanctifying process of making us holy. You're not going to get out of that. All who believe in Jesus Christ will be sanctified in Christ and become like him in righteousness. Hallelujah. Learn from Jacob that that is God's purpose. Get on board board with God's purpose for your life. You will be much happier. Now, it's clear to Laban that Jacob is not in control of the situation also. That's, that's no problem for Laban. Uh, Laban thinks he's in control of the situation, and as far as Jacob's concerned, he is. He will give Rachel to Jacob too, now for another seven years of service, which Jacob does. And he marries his first love and second wife. Now, we've said it before. I'll say it again since we're here. God does not condone polygamy. The Bible, though, 
reports it when it happens. And every time we see polygamy, we see the problems that come from it. God has given us marriage, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman before God for a lifetime. And when this creation ordinance is ignored, when this marriage truth is deceived or twisted or perverted, it results in problems. The problem here is that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Let me pick up in verse 31 of chapter 29. I'll read to chapter 30, verse 24 for this next part of our story. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now is the time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her silver Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, or vindicated me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore a son, a second son, to Jacob. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore to Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages. 
because I gave my servant to his husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, this is obviously a distressing account. Nobody likes to look at a family like this. It's just so painful to watch. I mean, it it reminds us of the account of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and the births of Ishmael and Isaac. It's just filled with sin and selfishness. We need to admit this is a unique situation. None of us have found ourselves in this unique situation. I'm not aware of anyone that has two, three, or four wives in the congregation. There are, there are two wives here to begin with, and the servants are used as concubines. These problems make their way forward in Jacob's already self-serving, self-sufficient life. They are the result of Laban's sin of deception against Jacob, which included Leah in the deception. The situation is unique from any of our situations, but the sorrows are the same, aren't they? The sorrows are the same that people experience today. A woman is desperate for the love of her own husband. Another woman who is loved by her husband is devastated that she has no children. This this family is lost in desperation, anger, pain, sorrow, and cruel rivalry. All these things will be preserved in the names of their children. Every time a child's name is spoken, one of these tragedies will be remembered. It bothers us to see the terrible ways that people treat each other, isn't it? It's even worse to see the terrible ways that people treat each other in their own family. We're not immune to cruel behavior within our own families. We're aided in our distress by the comfort that comes from our gracious and heavenly Father. He brings the comfort that we need. Being conscious of him, knowing him, brings us what we need. That is, again, where we see God in this account. He's the God of compassion and grace to sinners. God's gracious to Leah. Leah's marriage to Jacob comes about by trickery, the trickery of her father, Laban, but she participates in it. Jacob found her unattractive to begin with. She's contrasted with her younger sister as weak. Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Verse 17. One week after becoming Jacob's wife, Rachel becomes Jacob's wife also. Remember, seven years labor, he gets Leah, finish the week, he gets Rachel, and then works another seven years. Jacob loves Rachel, but he hates Leah. And he always will. Leah's situation is more complicated and more tragic than 
any of our situations that I'm aware of, but her, com- her problem is common in marriages today. Leah desperately wants her husband to love her. But Leah's unloved. So God loves Leah. Jacob won't love Leah, but God will love Leah. And he's gracious to Leah. Leah hopes that if she could just bear Jacob a son, then he would love her. God has compassion on Leah. And he opens her womb. And she has six sons. We observe that Leah's problem is approached by by some consciousness of God. Remember that Jacob approached life with no consciousness of God. He's on his journey. He's gone through this, this whole thing with Laban. Hasn't even mentioned God yet. Never mentioned God. He trusted in himself. But, but in her desperation, Leah has some consciousness of God. She names her firstborn son Reuben because Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for sees. And so she says, the Lord has seen my affliction. Now my husband will love me. You see, Leah is conscious of God and of her husband. But Jacob does not love her. She names her second son Simeon because Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for hears. You see how this works. And so she says, the Lord has heard that I'm hated. She's still conscious of God. She speaks of the Lord, but she doesn't speak of Jacob this time. She names her third son Levi, which means to attach. Surely Jacob will attach himself to Leah now that she's given him three sons. Notice she's conscious of Jacob again, but now now no mention of God. But Jacob doesn't attach himself to Leah. She names her fourth son Judah, which means praise. This time, Leah says, I will praise the Lord. I think that Leah is realizing that her identity is in the Lord. He's the one who sees her. He's the one who hears her. He's the one who has compassion on her. Her identity as a wife is distressing to her because her husband doesn't care. Her identity as a mother of Jacob's only sons at that time is painful because Jacob doesn't care. But the Lord loves her. The Lord has seen her and heard her and had compassion on her. Leah has experienced the grace of God, his favor, and she's resolved to praise the Lord. For now. If only Leah would stay right there. If only Leah would anchor herself right there. But she will slip into an escalating rivalry with her sister Rachel. You see, Rachel is watching Leah cranking out sons for Jacob, and Rachel's barren. She's desperate to bear children for her husband, and in her desperation, she lashes out at her husband. Give me children, or I'll die. That's how desperate she is. Jacob responds in anger. Woman, I'm not God. That's his job. Don't look at me. Rachel is desperate unto death, and Jacob is angry with her, the one that he loves. I mean, what do you think should happen at that moment, husband and wife? What should happen? Somebody should pray. 
husband and wife should pray, asking God for children, asking God for understanding. Lord, what are you doing here? Speak to us. Let us understand. What's your plan? See, Leah was conscious of God. We're not told that Leah prayed, but we are told that God heard her and had compassion on her. But Rachel doesn't pray, and Jacob doesn't pray. There's no faith. There's no hope. There's no love on display. Love's been turned to anger. There's no praying. There's no persevering through trials. There's no waiting on God. There's just anger and envy. Rachel's like Jacob here, isn't she? She takes control of her circumstances and she uses her servant as a surrogate to get what she wants. Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a third wife. Jacob goes into her and she bears Jacob a son. And Rachel is the one who names him. You see how that works. And she names him Dan, which sounds like the Hebrew word for judged or vindicated. Rachel says, ha, take that, Leah. I've been vindicated, and I'm the one that Jacob loves. Bilhah conceives and bears a second son, and Rachel names him Naphtali, which means wrestle. Ha, again, take that, Leah. I've wrestled with you, and I've won. And so in verse 9, we're told a second time that Leah had ceased to bear children. Why? Why has Leah ceased to bear children? It's not, because, it's not because anything's happened to Leah. It's because Jacob has stopped sleeping in Leah's bed. And so Leah responds to Rachel's cruelty by giving her her servant Zilpah to Jacob. You won't sleep with me. Here's my servant as a fourth wife. Jacob goes into her and she bears a son. And Leah says, lucky me, right? Fortunate me. She names him Gad and says, in your face, Rachel. Zilpah has a second son, and Leah says, I'm so happy. I'm the happy one. She named him Asher because she's so happy that she's crushing Leah in this rivalry. Notice that the four sons' names in this competition with surrogates, could be translated. I'm better than you, I beat you, I'm luckier than you, and I'm happier than you. So Jacob has four wives and eight sons in a family that's bitterly divided and hatefully cruel. We may not have this unique, complex family structure, but even families today experiencing cruelty from time to time. You can relate to that much. You can understand that, to some extent, you have the same need that these women have, that Jacob has in your family. In verse 14, little Reuben. Little Reuben, I don't know, four or five comes skipping along, and he's got some mandrake plants that he's pulled up by the roots. At that time, people thought that the mandrake plant could help stimulate fertility. Now, whether that's true or not, whether that's junk science or superstition, Rachel thinks, that's what I need. I need, I need those plants. I need those roots that little Reuben's carrying. That, not God, but that, 
That'll get me what I want. So she says, give me some. And Leah explodes. All her life, Leah's been second best to pretty Rachel. Rachel who always get what she wants. While weak Leah stands in the background unloved. Had to get, had to get pushed out of the house by her father in a, in a, in a trickery of marriage. And Rachel wants the mandrakes. Isn't it enough that you have my husband? That he does not love me, but he loves you. Do you have to have my son's plants too, Rachel? And so they enter into negotiations because that's what this family does. What do you want? What are you willing to give for it? Rachel wants mandrakes in order to have children. And Leah wants Jacob for a night. So Rachel sells her husband for a plant root. And Leah buys her husband with wages. Can it get any more absurd? Well, it can. What's the result? Rachel gets the mandrakes, but Leah is the wife who actually gets pregnant. Apparently, you can't trust in mandrakes. But you can trust in God. Verse 17 says, God listened to Leah, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah named him Issachar, which means wages or hired. So that every time somebody says, hey, Issachar, it's a constant reminder that his mom hired his dad with a plant root. Leah has another son and names him Zebulun, which means honor. Or in the context of marriage, a bride price. We we might say a dowry. She says, now my husband will honor me. Now the the dowry's been paid, the bride price has been paid. Now I will finally receive my bride price. But, But it doesn't change Jacob's feelings towards Leah one bit. But Leah has two sons. And a third baby, she she names Dinah. It's a girl. She names her Dinah. Dinah is the feminine of Dan. What does Dan mean? Vindicated, or I win. So Leah slam dunks Rachel with Dinah. I win. Now, I kind of hope you guys haven't taken sides this morning. It's not what you're meant to do. Leah really is devastated as long as she longs for her love for her own husband. Rachel really is distraught that she still has no children of her own for her husband. Both women have been devastatingly cruel to each other. Mercilessly hateful. And, and right where it hurts the most, right? There's no glancing blow. They go right at the great heartache that each of them has and just hammer on it. But God is still gracious. God is gracious to these cruel, hateful, envious, bitter, spiteful, vindictive women. Sinners. Why? Why would he even consider being gracious to them after they behave this way? Towards family. Because God is gracious. Towards sinners. It is, 
It is so helpful to read passages like this and get on our high horse and then remember, oh yeah, pretty much like those people right there that I just read about. Everything that's in their hearts in my heart. All the sins that they need to be forgiven of, I need to be forgiven of. You may not be in Leah's unique circumstances, but you know what it's like to be sinned against and to feel unloved. And you know what it's like to refuse love to someone that you owe love, sinner. You may not be in Rachel's unique circumstances, but you know what it's like to be distraught and to have someone leverage that against you. And you know what it's like to kick somebody when they're down, don't you? Even in your family. Oh, how we need God's grace. Oh, how we need God to look on us with compassion when others do not. And oh, how we need sinners. We sinners need him to take away our reproach. Look again at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Do you see that? Where's God in this passage? God is not holding Rachel's sin against her. Rachel is vain, proud, self-sufficient, superstitious, desperate, angry, and trusting in worldly ways like surrogacy and, and junk science to do what only God can do. But God... But God remembered Rachel. And when he did, Rachel suddenly became conscious of God in her life. Didn't she? God has taken away my reproach. What is it that brought reproach upon April? Rachel in her family was that she didn't have any children. But God opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and named him Joseph, which means add. Rachel is genuinely thankful. But the name she wants to always hear and remember is, I want another son. That's what Jacob means. Which seems a little selfish. But you know what it really seems? Prophetic. God will give Rachel one more son. She'll name him Benjamin. Joseph also points us to another son who will one day Take away the reproach of his people. That's the significance of Joseph. Joseph is our true hope in a world filled with deceit. The arrival of Joseph is a turning point in Genesis. He is the man God will raise up to rescue the entire nation of Israel. That is, all of Jacob's sons. We can say that Joseph is the one who will save his whole family. Joseph will be despised and rejected. His own will not receive his testimony. Joseph will be given over to death by his own family. And though they mean it for evil, God will use it for good. God will control the events of Joseph's life for the deliverance of many. You see, Joseph is going to be a picture of the gospel for us. And he marks the turning point in Jacob's life. It's now that Joseph is born that Jacob will decide to leave Laban and go back, return 
to the land that God has promised him, the land of Canaan. Isn't it amazing how God's plan of salvation, his gracious purpose of redemption, bursts through our sin, overrules our sin by the blood of Christ, the Son who's promised. You know, Ephesians tells us to be kind to one another and to forgive one another, even as God has forgiven us. But there will be times when we don't. There will be times when we look a little bit like what's happening here. Those are times when we can remember that God is gracious to sinners. God is gracious to sinners. When we are cruel to one another, even in our families, even in our church, God works his gracious will through his Savior. So know him. Journey with him. Look to him. Pray, asking of him. Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word that it is not just information and data that Christians should get around to knowing, but that in your word we find you. We find your grace and your love. We find your power and all that is available to sinners like us. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the grave. And we thank you that you are saving people all around the world, even this morning. God, we pray that you would save people even here. That those who are not conscious of you would become conscious of you and journey towards you. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.